Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Diana O'Carroll and with Dave Ansell. And let's kick off with a look at some of this week's hottest science news stories. Diana. Yes, well, this week researchers from Stanford University have revealed that in the last 30 years, corn and wheat crops have dropped by 3.8 and 5.5% respectively in yields in response to climate change. And this decrease in production has occurred in spite of technological advances, pest control measures, CO2 enhancement and the use of fertiliser. Publishing in Science, David LaBelle and his team note that all major growing regions for wheat, maize, soybeans and rice have experienced increases in temperature since 1980. The notable exception was the US, which experienced cooling. And although corn and wheat have seen a drop, soybean and rice crops have remained roughly unaffected across the globe. So to reach their conclusions, the researchers developed two models. Now, they developed one which mimicked the observed increases in climate temperatures and one which assumed temperatures had stayed the same since 1980. And they also used statistical tests to see if precipitation, that's rainfall changes, affected crop yields. The results demonstrated that increases in temperature had reduced global yields of wheat by 5.5%. And increased rainfall also had a negative effect on crops, but it was much less marked than temperature. So given that the US is a notable exception, it shows that analysing climate change data on a country-by-country scale will be misleading, and the team have shown that temperatures in the United States haven't increased in a statistically significant way, and subsequently their crops haven't suffered. But the rest of the world has seen a very obvious and worrying change, and this doesn't mean that the US is unaffected, since decreases in food availability across the world will inevitably have an effect on the cost of imports. In fact, the authors argue that it already has and that there's um, a 6% increase in food prices, um, even if you include the effect of extra CO2 in the atmosphere, which is quite frightening. Russia had a big problem last year, didn't it? Because their crops and harvests fail completely and Russia produce a huge amount of the world's wheat. Yeah, and it's a huge country to feed as well. And I suppose the logical conclusion which you sort of hint at is if this trend continues and accelerates, because whatever, and regardless of the cause of, of this warming signal, there has been a warming and the warming seems to cause the yields to be eroded in the face of rising world population, things are going to get far more pressured. Yeah, it's a quite a scary situation, actually. Even if you do ignore the CO2, which this team did, there is still a temperature rise going on across the world. Diana, thank you. Well, if you're fans of what goes on underneath the waves, you may have heard of the box jellyfish. And if you haven't heard of the box jellyfish, these are fascinating creatures. They live in various places around the world, and their preferred habitat is in mangrove swamps. Mangroves are these trees that grow on shorelines, and they create a very unique habitat because the sea washes in around the roots, and it brings in various food sources, including things like plankton. That's what these tiny jellyfish, which are just one centimetre across, actually eat. But the interesting thing about box jellyfish, the species that one group have been looking at, Tripedalia cystophora, is that the four faces of the box at the top of the jellyfish, because they're sort of cuboid shape, these jellyfish, the four faces have eyes. In fact, each face has got six eyes. And of those six eyes, two are rather special because they have lenses in them. 
In fact, if you were to study them in detail, you would see that they work in almost the same way that the eyes that you and I have work. So they have a little lens and they can focus light. So what Anders Garm and his colleagues at the University of Copenhagen wondered, and they've published this in the journal Current Biology, is what does this jellyfish actually do with these eyes? What can it see? Why does it have them? Well, these jellyfish, as I say, live in mangrove swamps and they eat plankton, but they eat plankton that are in the sunny bits, the illuminated areas. But if they swim too far from where they live, then there are no plankton out in the middle of lagoons, for example, and the jellyfish risk starving to death. So they have to be able to stay close to where the plankton are and close to home. And the scientists suspected that maybe these eyes are part of the navigational strategy. So they took a wide-angle camera lens and put it under the water and took photographs looking upwards to try to work out what these jellyfish would see because they had calculated that the jellyfish eye can see an arc of about 95 degrees which because of the way that water bends light, that's refraction when the light comes in through the surface of the water from the air this means the jellyfish probably has a 180 degree field of view above the water and by taking pictures with their camera they calculated that the jellyfish could be expected to resolve the outline of trees and things above the water up to distances of perhaps 8 metres. So to test this, what they did was to build a very big tank um, which floated in the water. So they put a whole bunch of jellyfish in the tank. This is done in Puerto Rico. And they then moved the tank different distances away from the shoreline. The idea of using this tank like this was that the jellyfish could see the sky and they were in water, which was seawater, and it was at the same temperature as the surroundings, but they wouldn't have any other cues like the smell of the shore. There would be no chemical signals, just the visual ones. At distances up to 8 metres from the shore, the jellyfish all continuously swam towards the side of the tank closest to the shoreline. At distances beyond 8 metres, which is the distance that the team found that their eyes couldn't have seen any further than that because basically the trees would go out of, uh, out of, out of view, the jellyfish just swam randomly. So this shows that even though these creatures are just one centimetre in diameter, they don't have a brain and they just have these ring neurons, these nerves that connect these different eye circuits together. They can use eyes they can process visual data and use it to control their navigation and feeding behaviour, which, as the team point out in their paper, defeats the idea that a central brain is a prerequisite for advanced behaviour, which I think is absolutely incredible. Dave? Wow. Now for something completely different. Um, researchers at CERN have managed to trap anti-hydrogen atoms for far longer than ever before. Every particle we know has an antiparticle, sort of anti-electrons, anti-protons, anti-neutrons, etc. And these seem to behave pretty much the same as their normal relations, but they have the opposite charge. And if, for example, an anti-electron meets a normal electron, they annihilate completely, releasing a huge amount of energy in the form of photons. Physicists don't understand why there's far more matter in the universe than antimatter, so they'd like to study antimatter in great detail to understand it. The problem is the only way to make antimatter is in violent collisions, so inevitably it ends up moving very, very, very fast, and unless your experiment is the size of a planet, you don't get very long to study it. Um, and whilst you can slow down charged particles magnetically, if you want to study the details of anti-atoms, for example, an anti-electron orbiting an anti-proton, so anti-hydrogen, they're uncharged, so it's very, very hard to accelerate and decelerate them. But in November, researchers at CERN managed to trap 38 atoms of anti-hydrogen for a maximum of about 0.2 seconds. And now they've managed to trap over 300 anti-hydrogen atoms for a maximum of 1,000 seconds, or about 17 minutes. Wow, yes, that's a long time. Which uh, actually gives them plenty of time to do experiments. So now they're going to move on to studying this anti-hydrogen and looking very carefully at the energy levels in the atoms. So what sorts of questions are they going to ask now they've got it bottled? 
so to speak, what will they be asking of it? Well, the first one is, is it does it behave like normal hydrogen? Because sort of is it energetically the same? Possibly even would it form a hydrogen antihydrogen molecule? That sort of question. And the other really, really fascinating one is that no one knows whether antiparticles are attractive or repelled by gravity. Really? Yeah. Why um, shouldn't they be then? Well, I mean, they seem to be opposite in other ways. So it's just possible they might have an anti-gravity effect and they might be repelled. So if they weren't attracted by gravity, what would happen? And what could be the consequence for cosmology? Well, for example, that could mean that there's a load of anti-matter sitting out a long way away from all the normal matter, because if they repel each other, they're going to fly apart, and that means there could be far more anti-matter out there. No one seems to be able to see it, but there could be a lot more out there. That could entirely change the way we think the universe works. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that, Dave. Well, also in the news this week, scientists have discovered what happens when the brain gets its first ever whiff of nicotine. By studying nerve activity in the brains of rats which have been exposed to nicotine for the very first time, Professor Daniel McGee at the University of Chicago has found that the drug triggers changes in the brain's circuitry, which makes people much more likely to then get hooked. The dopamine system is this this reward pathway the effect of addictive drugs on behavior is dependent upon a change in dopamine signaling. And so that's been a focus for our work and many other groups. And we know that nicotine activates a specific type of receptor, a protein that's on the surface of of many different neurons. And these receptors are excitatory. They depolarize the cell. They cause it to fire more. More electrical activity is happening as a result of that receptor activation. And we know that that's the first step in the process. And, And what our most recent study has shown is that this actually initiates a whole cascade of events. One of the things that happens is that the the inputs that normally excite these dopamine cells become stronger. Those synaptic connections, the the points of communication between cells are stronger after nicotine exposure. So are you saying then that the nicotine comes in, it stimulates some dopamine-producing nerve cells to make more dopamine, which the brain experiences as a pleasurable experience, and at the same time, the cells that make that dopamine which are connected to by other nerve cells, begin in future to respond more strongly to those connections than they would have done before. That's a a nice description of what our data and others have shown, yes, that the, the connections are stronger. It's something that persists for days. And what we're looking at are the steps that lead to that change. So, even after the nicotine is gone, these, these connections remain strong for between five and, and 10 days after exposure. And just to emphasize, that's a change that's happening to a, an animal that's not seen the drug before, and it's in response to one exposure. And when the person has had that change happen in their brain or in the animal, whatever the context is, mm. what then makes the person keep reaching for the cigarette packet? Because if their cells are now producing more dopamine because the connections to them are stronger, the cells are getting more excitable than they were before, why carry on smoking? Yeah, it's a great question and one that we would love to have the complete answer to. But the transition from from occasional use or a single exposure to the full-blown addicted smoker is a long and complex process that we really don't understand. We know that there are 
huge adaptations happening in the areas that we're looking at, but also it's very likely that other brain areas begin to play critical roles. In adolescents who are experimenting with smoking, they will quite often sample cigarettes at a very low rate, like once a month, once every two weeks, once every week. One theory that I like a lot is the idea that the duration of the change in this increase in excitation in the pathway is contributing to that process and establishes a, a, a framework for associating the tobacco and nicotine with pleasure. And then that basically sets the stage for the progression to full-blown addiction, which is going to be involving this process, but almost certainly many other things that we still don't understand. Does it transfer to other drugs? Because if you rewire this circuitry, which makes your brain much more prone to getting hooked on things, and then another drug comes along, does the tobacco pre-priming, the nicotine changes, mean that then some cocaine is much easier to get hooked on than it would do without this happening? It's certainly a possibility, and that, again, is beyond the scope of what we're looking at right now, but it does fit with the basic idea that co-use of a variety of different substances is quite common. So the idea that uh, the exposure to one drug is modifying or enhancing the rewarding effects of another drug makes perfect sense to me in, in, as far as I understand the system that this would be one of the ways in which that could happen. I think 75% of people who smoke say that they would prefer not to. That's the intended quit rate. The success rate, obviously, another matter. What about trying to use this information to help people to quit or to not get hooked in the first place? I do think that this adds to the public health message that I think is being broadcast quite effectively in many parts of the world, that exposure to tobacco products and nicotine is potentially addictive and it is long-term exposure has huge negative health consequences. And there's just no argument there. The, the idea that even occasional and casual use of, of tobacco products could be inducing persistent effects on those parts of the brain that we know are important for reward and addiction, that totally fits with that. As far as the potential for treatment of the um, full-blown smoker who, who is, is trying to quit, we certainly hope that identifying steps in the process in terms of, of cellular events, molecular events that are happening inside neurons, understanding that better may certainly lead to the identification of new drugs that could increase the abysmal quit rate that is out there. I do think that the most important message is that there are changes happening with the very earliest exposures, and that is part of the progression. Well, they say it takes only one cigarette to get you hooked, and uh, that evidence looks like it's quite compelling, doesn't it? That's Daniel McGee, who's from the University of Chicago. He published that work this week in the Journal of Neuroscience. Diana. Well, also this week, researchers from the University of Pittsburgh have found a chemical similar to that found in red wine that can protect against radiation sickness. Specifically, they looked at gamma radiation and how its effects might be reduced by a substance similar to resveratrol. Now, resveratrol is an antioxidant commonly found in wines, grapes and nuts, and plants commonly use it to fight off bacterial and fungal infections. The reason the researchers think that an antioxidant might help in protecting against radiation exposure is that they might 
mop up the free radicals that gamma radiation can produce. And it's these ionised free radicals which do the cell damage. Publishing in ACS Medicinal Chemistry Letters, Michael Eppley and colleagues first tested the naturally occurring resveratrol on live cells in flasks, which were exposed to radiation. And they found that these cells were given some protection by the chemical, but when they tested it on a mouse, it had very little positive effect. So the researchers turned to another similar chemical known as acetyl resveratrol. And this time, the drug produced an 80% survival rate amongst the amongst the mice. Uh, the difference between the two drugs' um, efficacies is most likely because the acetyl resveratrol is more slowly metabolised and therefore lasts longer to provide its protective effects. And the authors also argue that this could be good news for cancer patients since the other candidates for anti-radiation drugs work by suppressing cell apoptosis, which is cell death, and could therefore aggravate a cancer. Because they think acetyl resveratrol is using a different mechanism, it could be a better alternative and, they add, it's relatively cheap to produce. That's fascinating. Now, also this week, two predictions made from general relativity in 1918 and even before that have finally been tested. In 1918, two Austrian physicists worked out if Einstein's theory of general relativity was right, a large spinning object should drag space and time around it. This means that if you're standing near this spinning object, your idea of what isn't spinning will be different to someone who's out in deep space. But the problem is this effect is really very minute. You'd have to be near something incredibly heavy to notice it. And the technology to actually test that just hasn't been there up until now. It was in fact so difficult that the project has taken 52 years to produce an answer. Can I ask something just to clarify this? So if the object is perfectly symmetrically spherical and it spins, does that still drag space around with it, you're saying? Yes. Or, or is it the fact that it's irregular, that the Earth has mountains and patches of its surface where there is a bit more gravity than other areas, let's say, and that's why it drags space-time around with it. General relativity just says that if something with mass is spinning, it should be dragging space-time around it, a bit like sort of syrup or something around a spinning object. American scientists have built a satellite called Gravity Probe B. This is an incredible mission using basically all the most funky physics out there. They've made incredibly smooth spheres covered with a thin layer of superconductor. They've got them spinning incredibly fast, acting as gyroscopes. If there's no external influences, you should keep pointing in the same direction. The satellite detects their direction using superconducting sensors called squids and compares their direction to a fixed star. The whole thing has to be cooled to make sure that the superconductors are working and to minimise thermal noise. And to reduce friction, they do this using um, a superfluid liquid helium, which has no viscosity at all. It's a bit like a superconductor. The satellite was launched in 2004 and took measurements for 18 months until basically all the helium ran out. It's taken them about five years to analyse the data properly. It's that difficult. And they've come out with a figure of about... 10.3 millionths of a degree per year due to this frame-dragging effect. Um, is which, that is so. it real? Um, or, <laughs> or is that within the realms of, of statistical variation in the sensitivity of the experiment? Could it just be noise? Well, if you work out the general relativity and do all the equations, it comes out as about 10.8 millionths of a degree per year, um, which is a very good agreement. So this looks pretty real. 
Um, they also found a very good agreement with a second effect called geodetic precession. This doesn't only show quite how incredibly accurate Einstein's theories were 90 years ago with none of the modern technology, but also should allow astronomers to improve their models of how very heavy objects like neutron stars and black holes. I was going to ask you, what are the implications for astronomy and cosmology, having confirmed this now? Basically, astronomers um, haven't really known that this effect was true, so they haven't necessarily put it into their models. Now they know it's there, they can put it into all their models. It's going to be a big effect only when you get a very, very heavy object, large objects. It might have a small effect on spinning galaxies um, and definitely on things like neutron stars, which are incredibly heavy and spinning very, very, very fast. Well, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for those news stories are online. They're at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.